Welcome back to Fantastic Blackness with myself, Tavian Yango, and my co-host, Shante Paradigm Smalls. And our fabulous guest for this past two episodes has been Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. So last episode, which if you haven't yet heard, please go back and check it out. We began by talking about our shared origins in performance studies, how the world of theater has rather the pandemic, and the role of the arts in the struggle for racial justice in our times. And as we continue, we are going to delve even deeper into that topic, as well as the place of science fiction and speculative narrative in all of this. So please enjoy the second hour of our interview with Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Uh, but I know. Well, we can keep going. But we didn't even talk but... about no sci-fi. Oh, my God. <laughs> we're, 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 here we go. What's Fantastic. going on for you right now as a writer yeah. um, okay. in sci-fi? And what's in your future yeah. as a writer? So what what TV shows have you let me what TV shows have you written for and what oh, and what are you writing for now and what do you feel you'll be doing uh, in the future? Well, I've written for a lot of shows that didn't make it to air, which is a whole other podcast. That's all right, pilot season. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you know, the show that people, that like made it to air that I feel like the most I watch it and I'm like I am in the show is um is Watchmen, and yes. it was um it was wild. And I, I would love to talk more about it. It was just a wild experience. And, it's, and it was crazy to see the world meet these ideas. And like between us, like part of my, I felt like part of what Damon asked me to do explicitly was help um, break the kind of story of Hooded Justice as a, as a Black man and like walk through, you know, what, how would this character exist as a queer man? And like, what would be happening? And that was, and I feel like I did pull a lot of performance studies into that in those conversations. And I think some of it kind of got on on screen in very quiet ways. And, it did, yeah. Yeah, yeah for sure. Very, that's why I felt very, um, it, was, it was an interesting experience. It was a difficult experience too, because like I said, you know, you create these high minds and you're meeting everyone's imaginations. And he cast a pretty volatile room. And, and it's funny, like years, like a year or two later, he and I had like a long conversation and we kind of reflected on it and it was it in some ways like the volatility of that room is in the show. And I think that's what makes it sort of s- striking. Like it's sort of not a comfortable show. Um, yeah. You felt, I felt like sometimes, I mean, first I remember seeing your name and I was like, screamed. <laughs> I was like, oh my that's God. Funny. And I like that's lost funny. my mind. I was like so excited. And it made me even more invested. I'm a big Watchmen fan. Mm-hmm. Read the Same. comics, saw the movie. There's something about the TV show, the you know, the movie. I feel. I mean, the comic is pretty volatile. Yeah, yeah. The movie, the movie played it very safe, and there was something like, I mean, not just on as you're saying, it's not just on the screen, but there felt like there was something sinister thing, mm-hmm. you know. And it was like Worked it could through. go anywhere. It could go. It could go anywhere. And I really love television that makes me feel that way. It feel it feels very alive. It feels like the writers and the directors and the actors and the showrunners are really like, let's just put it all on and see what happens. Yeah. Um, so there was something about, I mean, I know they have different feelings, but that felt similar. Lovecraft Country also has had a similar vibe where it felt like this could go, child, this could go anywhere. And I don't and know. It sure did. It sure went anywhere. <laughs> it sure did. Girl. I mean, well, you know, the, the, quite as it's kept, there were two shows being developed at the same time. One was watching, one was Lovecraft Country. And, you know, I think it's really interesting and worth figuring out why both those things are cinched around the Tulsa riots. 
Yes. Because, you know, I would say that the, the other thing there's, you know, I think it's dangerous to think of a writer's room as some sort of politically neutral space. Like I said, it's the, the it is dictated in all sense of the words by a showrunner's vision, their, their politics, however covert, their limitations of the imagination, you know, they're, they're working hard to enhance themselves, but blind spots are just blind spots and you just have to get the show done. And I would say that like a lot of that room's volatility was about the, it was about the meeting of like white and black imaginations, which are speaking of Miss Morrison, like who is still playing in the dark? Because I, you know, I could, I mean, maybe I can just be critical of the show now without getting in trouble. I think I can, right? I don't know, but <laughs> I, I didn't sign nothing. But, you know, I felt like one of the, so, you know, Damon had this very provocative idea where he wanted to um, do a sequel to the book, which I love. I love Alan Moore, icon. He's up there with Morrison to me, actually, a little bit. Very much And so. his idea was to do, like, an alt-history sequel, because the book itself is an alt-history. And my whole point a lot of the time was, like, you guys, all histories you know, in terms of the genre, very often do not take place um, too far along from the event being altered because it's like changing the trajectory of a rocket ship. Like after a while, in theory, that alt is so far away that it would be unrecognizable to us as a viewer, right? How would we find emotional catharsis or a cathetic relationship with this thing if it was like the moon and you know what I mean? But what was interesting was to experience how even in those alt histories, you know, science, science fiction, as we know, has real issues with its roots in like eugenic theory and like, you know, and that's part of the genius of what Butler and those lovely Le Guin and these people were kind of intervening on was thinking through how like social sciences are always right next to the biological sciences, you know? Um, yes, absolutely. But, you know, I, you know, where there were lots of moments where I was like, I think that what you're pitching right now is a white supremacist idea of the future that's no different than its own. And that would go over weird, you know, and also the ways that the politics of how we in our imaginations move uh, the other through an idea of their life is always interesting. So, you know, there's always joking about the magical Negro. And I think a lot about, I think if you're watching the show White Lotus, you guys have you seen this show yet? Yeah. I'm thinking about I watch yeah. it. I watch it. But I'm I trying to, to watch something. the chair and get through it. I, 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 I'm, I'm living the chair, so I'm going yeah, to come trick, back I'm to it. It's, it's a lot. It's a lot. You know, you said something, though, Brandon, about um, how, you know, like a, there was a breakthrough moment in writing for um, Watchmen where you kind of pointed out that this so-called alternate universe that you're talking about, That's right. reality, is that's if you look at the panels in the comic book for yeah. black people, it's not that alternate. That's right? exactly there's a kind of like a sameness in these two universes. And there's a, you know, that was like a really powerful um, comment when I first heard you make it because it does explain both our, you know, at least for me, it speaks to both what, it, what attracts us, I guess, as, you know, um, as claiming the space of reception in speculative fiction as like black um, black readers and viewers, um, but also, you know, understanding this is not a side or a speculative picture, right? But they're actually recognizing it's a double, as a double vision. Yeah. I think that, I mean, I was sort of trying to slowly get to that, that point, which is that there was a moment uh, when I was, you know, I was sort of sick of these race conversations where we were kind of positing racial theories into a universe that had an author, which was Alan Moore. So I was like, I'm going to go back to the, you know, tell my adaptation. I literally was like, okay, this weekend, I'm going to comb through this entire comic and I'm going to circle and highlight everything that references racial difference as possible. And I did that. And I realized this is how genius and how much of a deep thinker Alan Moore is that he had accounted for that. 
that like black people were alive in this world, but they but they were just off camera. And their and the life that they were living was as bad as the life that we were living anyway. Because there's yes, a whole moment yes. where you see them give up on black unrest. You know, black unrest is an issue to deal with. And they're like, we don't want to deal with black unrest. I think that's actually <laughs> a line in the show. I think I want to be a line in the show. But yeah. that for me kind of was the key to sort of sort of start following where I was like, right, like, and this is because the truth is the watchman itself, the comic, was a deconstruction of genre. Like that was the whole point, is he wanted to yeah. kind of like deconstruct like race racist myths, really underneath the superhero idea and 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 when you sort of think when you sort of think about everything as a deconstruction suddenly you're like right like this this show has to deconstruct its own um the veneration of the comic you know that's the whole point you know but then of course at the same time you know you add these new characters like i one of the hills i died on was um the use of dr manhattan where I was like, this is actually mm-hmm. not canon. This is actually not how Dr. Manhattan works in the book. If you read closely, like he doesn't inhabit a new body. He creates a new form for himself. So he actually would create the body of a black man. He would need to take a, appropriate a dead body, a black body, right? But then there's something odd about the fact that if he's doing that, then he's actually in theory in blackface. He's in like a science fiction form of blackface. And that becomes a different conversation. And then when you think about the character of Regina's King's character, I, by the way, I brought this up in the room and it, obviously did not go anywhere. But if you think about the history of the archetype of like the mammy, but also the kind of oversex, I would say like topsy type or the, you know, the Rachel figure, this, I was always so puzzled that she had these white kids she'd adopted. She couldn't have her own kids. And I was like, what would be it? I would bring it to the room. I was like, what would be at stake if she had black kids? Like what would happen? (laughs) You know? I was like, why does she have these damn white children? These white children. But I was like, you know, why is there a difficulty for the white imaginations in this room to imagine a black woman having black children? Or the idea of like a black procreativity? Like, what is the struggle? Why can't we all get behind? You know, it was interesting, but I was like, you know, this is a mammy. This is this this person, this exists in our culture. It's called a mammy. And then at the same time, this notion that she's like this hypersexualized sort of emotionally empty cop and that she chooses this black body because the black body has genitals. You know, you're suddenly like, what's the, what's, what? <laughs> you know, what are She's the- entangled hobbies? with the white supremacist clansmen. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was like, what is the story, Morning Glory? Like, what are we talking about? And there's something interesting about the fact that she would be the child of a black Vietnam soldier. Looks like when we think about like, you know, the importance of, the veteran who returns in terms of the moving of civil rights history in our history. I was like, there's something there, but I don't think we went far enough. Anyway, it was just, it was, but you know, it wasn't my show. It wasn't my show. Right. I was happy to get Skip Gates on there, testing people's blood. You know, but that's the fun of a TV show is like, you know, sometimes the things you do, they stick and they become part of that world and you get to watch the world receive those ideas. And that's like a real pleasure. You know. Next time you get us on there talking about affect theory, black affect theory. I don't, literally, I, don't <laughs> I, I, I do feel like that show, that season, that pith season is going to be so resonant, you know, for the next decade or so. It, it There was so much there. There was so much good writing. There was so much, there's so much to sink your teeth into. There's so much to say, push back against. There's so much to go deep in. So I, I do think that's one of the, 
Anytime I see like fanboys or whatever online being like, boo race, I'm like, great, this is going to be, you know, no, it's great. working. Yeah, and it's so working. It's working. It's, it's hitting something, right? Because it's making them have to like, yeah, yeah. It's actually, it's actually shining the light on the like the shadows of, you know, if, I mean, Alan Moore, if you, V for Vendetta, all these stuff, it's like, this is all about race. Like, he's not it's shy. All about whiteness. He's in not, the, it's whiteness from the British shy. in the place of empire, yes. right? That's his, that's right. You know, he's not. This is not like, uh, you know, even the killing joke and from hell, these are not, these are all explorations of like whiteness and colonialism yeah. and like white masculinity. He's not shy yeah. about that. And anyway, so I do think that, that uh, it's so exciting to know they're at archive and part of that writer's room, because I feel like it has, you know, it's one of those experiences, one of those shows that I really want. I know people are like writing think pieces, but I'm like, I want to spend a lot of time, you know, revisiting. I've watched through the season twice rereading Watchmen, looking, watching, rewatching the movie, because this is not, it's a dense um, text. It's dense and it's not, yeah. it's deserves, it deserves the, the, it deserves close reading, you know, and mm-hmm. it deserves that's exactly a right. lot of, you know, and that's yeah, the it's not, it's not, who, it's not pop. Yeah, that's right. Because he doesn't, he really took his time. I mean, that writer's room went on for like two years. That's mm-hmm. unheard of for a 10 episodes of television. Like there is a lot of thought and labor that went into what you're seeing on that on that screen. And I agree that there is something, I was really nervous to watch it. But then when I watched it, I was like, okay, this is, it kind of, in some ways it gave you too much. And that was exactly right. Like there's so many contradictions. There's so, but that's what makes it interesting. It's like, I'm not saying it's Moby Dick, but it's sort of like, a, there's something kind of novelistic in that way about it, where you can just go down a number of different tangents and so much is unresolved, but like, you stay with certain moments and places and things really kind of stick with you. And I thought it was, and you know, the irony of it being that like, here's this old history that actually made the Tulsa riots more of a history for us. Right. I mean, the fact that it literally, what a, I mean, what was funny about that room is all the black people knew about it. And all the white people were like, well, what happened? And then you know, <laughs> it goes, it's on TV and suddenly Tulsa got to talk about it to their students. You know, that's the power of yeah. pop culture in that way. And it's just interesting. It's just interesting. right, and now we have you know anti-critical race theory, right? Because two major television shows said yes, this happened, and, yep. and you have to, and it wasn't as we were taught the Tulsa race riots, but the Tulsa race war. You know, and we knew about you know some of the towns in uh, in uh, you know Florida. What was that movie that John Singleton did? Um, Rosewood. Rosewood. So the move bombing in Philadelphia, and so these are it's as you're saying alt history to who? Who's alt history, right? Because yeah. it's history for many yeah. people, you know? Yeah. It's not all history. It's what's been erased. I just saw this thing. Uh, I don't I don't want to say it's Texas because I always say it's Texas, but a, a new text that was literally like trail, they call it Trail of Tears. The section is called Moving Out. And that the Native American tribes agreed to leave so that the <laughs> European settlers could come. I just don't. Yeah, I don't buy it. to leave. Yeah, and they showed them shake. They showed them shaking hands. Of course they did. They yeah. them, I mean, but that's Thanksgiving, right? Yeah, the natives, right. That's Thanksgiving. Know. And you know, it's, I mean, it's, talk about speculative fiction, right? Talk about science fiction, right? The white white tellings of history or, or empire colonial or em, uh, empires retellings of history is science fiction. You know, it's yeah. it's like. A total, uh, it's a total falsehood. Anyway. Yeah. You, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't want the conversation to, to end, of course, you know, um, because, you know, the partly, you know, thinking about the Watchmen as a, as a deconstruction of the superhero genre, 
as you know, you're, you're putting it, it also makes me think about something that's weird for me as like a really, you know, OG Marvel comics nerd going back to the eighties, you know, and like, it's been so kind of weird to me to watch my adult life, see like that property become the thing that ate, you know, and um having you know so much to do with um you know uh corporate multiculturalism and a mode of storytelling that actually can um uh be uh you know broadcast globally or whatever right you know and at these like scales and whatever i mean that's not to say there's not a lot of wonderful i mean i watched loki i'm you know again like i'm, I'm torn because in some sense i'm i'm, I'm I, I go back and forth between kind of like a marvel completist you know and i have like aesthetic judgments about shows i like and think are doing really interesting things um i'm very interested in the fact that uh you know, the new supervillain is a black man, which I think is good you know, in one incarnation. But on the other hand, to just to have a, have a story like The Watchmen that is within the genre of comics or comes out of genre of comics, but is is thinking, um, inviting audiences to think about like where the texture of those stories come out of, right? You know, that it doesn't simply, you know, um, Barring a line from C.L.R. James, who would say of, um, you know, James used to say about cricket, you know, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know, right? I used to say, like, what, what do they know of comics who only comics know, right? Mm -hmm. The only thing you know about comics is comics. Like, what do you actually know about, like, the right. world that comics right. is right. trying to, you know, is, is, is kind of like a symptom of. So it's, I can imagine it's both thrilling and sort of frustrating to be kind of like writing into that space and trying to, imagine um and then you know an end result which you probably don't see until you know yeah it's insane i mean because you know the watchman's not owned by alan moore it's owned by dc it's owned by dc comics which right. you know was always the right. sort of conservative marvel you know it's very right. and you know i remember hearing a story once that apparently watchman is such a problem for them because it's this hugely popular title but for whatever reason they can't quite it, it's like he dropped like a virus in their universe they can't for some reason men like what they want to do like marvel's doing right now is build out a marvel universe right where like mm -hmm. everyone's connected everyone you can do crossovers you can do this everyone's histories will overlap eventually they can't do that and watchmen has always been the issue they yeah. can't seem to assimilate if they do these like before watchmen's they try to sequels but they never quite capture the magic that alan moore did because i think he was bringing a critical perspective onto the form and that's what's actually so it's you know he's very influenced by brett speaking of theater people and there's so many funny brecht references inside that world yes. very brechtian it's yeah it's very yeah i mean i think that's why i was sort of in love with him there's something that felt very yeah brechtian about it ultimately well even you and know I, even this thing about it being published by dc i think it was on vertigo so it wasn't it was it was on their imprint right it was like you know it's where it's where dc puts their weird stuff like on image uh -huh. or vertigo when you know, it's like where Sandman started off or whatever, and then the test stuff. And then, you know, because Watchmen was like under, that was like a nerd's nerd text. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was, that was under the radar for a long time. And it, you know, when Zack Snyder, I guess, did the movie, it was sort of like, oh, okay. But this, this text is really, um, and so much, you know, yeah, DC, I've talked to a lot of comic artists about their experiences working for Marvel versus DC. And they're like, 
I mean, they have a lot to say about both those places and how troubling they are and but what they think of themselves. But D.C. is more explicit, as you say, in its conservatism. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, because it has these really three, you know, the big three of of Superman, Superman, those those iconic characters are so connected to we're just really getting in the last decade or two the subversiveness of those characters we haven't really got to wonder woman yet but you know superman as as a jew right mm -hmm. and that's what he, he wasn't the that was the alien and batman as a total lunatic yeah. billionaire who yeah. is he and the he and the you know if you read the killing joke he and the joker are you know one and the same except one's yeah. a billionaire and one's that's a right. A, a, well, you, you know, know so crazy. my big, so I, you know, I, it's so funny. I, I just rewatched um, Batman Returns, whichever one that has mm -hmm. Michelle Pfeiffer as Catwoman. And I had this revelation about Batman where I was like, oh, you don't, you actually don't, I don't watch Batman for Batman. I watch for the villains. And when you the go villains. into those, and when you lean into those backstories, they are always the victims of systemic or environmental crimes. And that is, yes. and that that's the thing that turns them crazy yes. and into these villains that he has True. to keep. He has to keep bat batting and down like their class, right? Harley yeah. Quinn, the Joker, Two oh Face, God. the Penguin. You know, and I was like, um, and that the was the of, And when those those early Batman movies, which everyone loves, which I guess Border on can't, they always make they always make sure that what you're really, but you're you're getting the backstory of the Penguin. You're getting like the Joker's backstory. You're getting the you know, and then Christopher Nolan comes along with his like neocon aesthetics, and suddenly you know Batman's studying with Asian people to learn how to do karate, and now he's like, you know, blowing up prison ships, and he's wiretapping cities, and you're like, whoa, this is. <laughs> This is the kind of, this is the door that opened on this sort of cinematic, um, basically like hollowing out of comics sort of radical potentiality, I think, when they became, when they stepped into a space of myth-making, you know? Um, yeah. And I, and I think it's about Marvel. Like, I've, you've heard me talk, you know, about um, my Black Panther critiques, you know, but there is something about watching them struggle to put black characters in a space of, of uncomplicated heroism in a way that doesn't necessarily require like making up a city or a town, you know? I mean, it's so <laughs> fun. Have you watched the latest What If? No. So I thought it was really interesting because, you know, the first the first episode of What If, it, Marvel's What If is, um, well, they have Jeffrey Wright playing, I mean, I don't know, whatever, The Watcher. They're like, we need some black voice gravitas. Kind of. First episode of What If is, uh, is, uh, Captain Carter. So Peggy is Captain America. It's mm. incredible, right? Mm. And then, um, so they're making the Wolfman universe as canon. So this is an interesting also um, marketing tool to see like yes. how these things play. And, and they're very, like they're smart stories. And then we get Chala as Star-Lord. So instead of wow. Peter Quinn, we get T'Challa as, and how he changes the whole universe because, I mean, it was a little bit, he was a little bit like the benign Negro, but how he ch actually changes the universe because of who he is as a person. Um, but even watching them struggle, uh, you know, Marvel has this thing where, or, or Kevin Feige has this thing where it's like, oh, we don't, we rarely try to have people play two different roles or whatever, recasting. But they they had two different, um, I forgot the name, you know, Wanda, Wanda Maximoff's brother. They had two oh, different ones. Oh, Quicksilver. Right, but you, yeah, know Quick, 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 Quick. you know why that is? you know why that is? Because the X Men properties are licensed by Fox. Yes, right. So they had yeah, yeah. Sony yeah, yeah. stuff. So they have to recast stuff. everything. Yeah, they're trying to figure out. Oh, should we recast Black Panther? I'm like, the comics have Shuri play Black Panther. Literally, Black Panther is a 
is like Robin, speaking of Batman, mm-hmm. someone, it's a role passed on. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's yeah. not a person, right? It's a, you know, T'Chaka was Black Panther, his father. Anyway, so it's it's like a struggle. Like, what do we do with these Black characters? Okay, you know, wh- how, do we, how do we, I'm like, you have to, you don't. You do you it say, all the time. Like, yeah. You yeah. do it all the time. Well, I was going to say, I think that's a product of this sort of like mythifying cleaning up of of the Black Panther figure. I mean, he began as like a, like almost every person in the Marvel universe who was black, he began as like a ruffian on the street. He was a bad guy who they turned good. Yeah. And in, in, in the turning good, yes. they invented a mysterious wealthy African nation that sits in the heart of Africa in the woods that nobody can see. Where and everybody, so, wherever the strongest, the strongest metal in the universe comes from. This non-made, this made up metal. And so it's like, you might as well be Loki, right? You might as well come from like, a, from a, a different cosmology. And I think when, you know, when, when you're trying to appeal to people in the in level of representation, it's because you're trying to meet them at, at the place that they are beyond their visual appearance, right? You're trying to touch people and get, and create a cathetic relationship inside of their own life. And so I think they have that drama of like, well, we all kind of like projected into Chadwick Boseman because we like Chadwick Boseman, but now he's gone. And it's like, oh no, what's going to make, what's going to make um, Black Panther relatable now? Because he, as a character, he's a, he's a demigod, you know, it's a different yeah. thing. I mean, it reminds me not to get too cuckoo, sorry, go down the, the, the path, but it reminds me of the Chris Claremont years of the X-Men. Right. And particularly when I fell in love. Well, okay. I see. No, I mean, I that fell in love with Storm was when she was, you know, that the Mohawk and the, I was like, whoa, this is a story. I mean, I'm writing about Storm too for my second book and really that period and, and, you know, how they can't get Storm right through casting, through writing. I'm like, you know, that Jean Grey are best friends. They hardly talk. Right. Um, right. Jean Grey and Storm are some of the most powerful X-Men. You know, it's not just Wolverine. It's not just, right. it's not They just, run you know. the X-Men and, for a long stretch. Well, Storm runs the X-Men for a certain yeah, yeah. <laughs> The X-Men movies have been for 20 years, right? Yeah. And St- and even I was talking with Greg Pak when he was he and Victor Ibanez were doing the the two-year solo Storm comic, right? She got her first comic in like 2013, solo comic. And and it was such a great comic, but it was about her basically doing um humanitarian aid to like some made-up like Caribbean country. <laughs> Because she's just from Africa. She a goddess from Africa. She didn't she's an African American, yeah. right? She goes. She goes from Egypt to Harlem. I don't she even know. She had a fair amount of retcon. I mean, yeah. I remember in my, you know, in my day, she was like, you know, found on the bustling streets of Mombasa or something. Yes, like she went <laughs> yes, from she was e- a- you went from Cairo to Kenya. That's right. Yeah, she was yeah. a street punk. Street, you know, street, street punk, you know. But the thing about, like, yeah, the Claremont years to kind of even tie back to the Watchmen, right? Is that you know, you know, Claremont in his own way was also you know a writer who presented a similar kind of dilemma, right? He really wanted to keep the X Men as his contained universe, and he didn't really want to do all these, you know, you know, uh, annual crossovers and multiple X books that they kept, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of pushing out in part because, you know, he felt that, and he also, did, and he didn't want to retcon, he kind of really wanted these characters to have, uh, he wanted to develop them and he kind of felt yeah. like, you know, when, 
you know, when when Jean Grey died, he didn't want to bring her back, right? Right. And, but that was like a betrayal of the logic of the, sh- of, the, of, the, of, the, of the comic book. And Marvel was like, what are you talking about, logic? You know? Yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. Is about, yeah. this is about dollar signs here. Dollar logic. Right, right. dollar logic, you know? But I think that, yeah, it's come at a cost for... Um, you know what um what we're allowed to see specifically with um with black superheroes like storm um remember cable the bionic remember black. cable yes yeah and, and then they uh, were dating because you had to have the two blacks date yeah that was yeah. a moment yeah and then she and then she married a black panther Child. She married Black Panther. I mean, I was so funny. I mean, the Claremont years to me. I I would. If you polled everybody in the world. I would say that Claremont years are where most people came to the X Men. And I think, and he's someone else I also really admire. Who like, I don't know. I, I once I did. You know, they collected all his and like these big things. I I was paid. I remember looking through them like five years ago and it's like a treat for myself. And I felt like he he has similar. He shared a similar novelistic impulse to Almore. And he was also he also recognized that this space of speculative fiction is as much allegory as it is just daydreaming, right? And that there is, there was a kind of like interesting, he was working through something about second wave feminism through that dark Phoenix moment. And like, Mm -hmm. I think that the legacy virus was, it's not a mistake that it was happening at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Like I think he was, he understood that, yes, we're here to, there's escapism, but the escapism is supposed to reflect back on the real world. It's just to talk to the world that you're in. And that's what makes those things so iconic. I don't know. I, that's, it's, I mean, I, I love that, that to me, I, I was, I can, I say that I'm a Marvel person, but the truth is I'm an X-Men person. Cause I didn't really branch beyond that property in my entirety time, my like most formative time of reading those comics, you know, but anyway, y'all asked me what I was working on. So I'm okay. <laughs> um, the great. I love I'm, it. I'm actually in LA right now. We're about to shoot a pilot for Kindred. Um, adaptation of the Octavia Butler novel, yeah. um, and hopefully that will be a thing that moves forward. So um, but that's occupying my entire life right now. Yeah, I wish I could. Mm. Be honest, How big is that writers' room? We had um, six six writers in that room, um, four of whom were black women of varying wow. stripes and investments in the text. Wow. Um, a great guy named Bobak Esfarjani, who I should shout out, who was who worked on WandaVision, and I was very impressed with mm. him. And he was super, um, super uh, collaborative in the room. A woman named Joy Kekin, who is a part of the original team for The Wire, who uh, was oh, also wow. incredibly additive. I, I was very, very, very lucky. Um, a young woman named Zinzali Price, who was talking about critical race theory in her interview. And I was like, well, okay, I guess this is a thing now. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was really fun. I mean, people are going to whip my legs. I'm sort of bracing for that, you know, the best case scenario is the show goes and then people see what we've been trying to do. Um, and I've done some like things that I think people interpret as radical, but actually I think are in the grain of Octavia Butler's thought based on my kind of spending time with her papers and, and, and writing around it. Cause that book I didn't realize is almost 50 years old, which is insane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Isn't that insane? Did you read the about, Did you read the comic too when you were writing, or did you say I the comic? have the comic? Yeah, I actually use it as like a cheat, like a storyboard cheat sheet. Yes, I mean, that's I really. Smart. Yeah, I admire, I admire, but they made some cuts. I would, you know, it's of course you want to be like, well, I would have done that, but mm-hmm. they, it's a pretty. I, I what I would regret is if people thought that was a standard for the novel because I think yeah. that so much of the tr- the pleasure and the conceptual trick of the book is that 
she's a writer and that the book you're holding in her hand in your hands is her first book you know and that there's mm-hmm. something yes. about being with her voice and being in the point of view where you can't see and know everything that actually is what makes that it makes the conceptual idea of it some that much stronger you know i think the minute you this is something we're wrestling with right now as we start discussing like camera and how things will look is like the minute you can show the whole world beyond her you lose something about the elegance of the metaphor because it's so much about a perception of self as black or not black and anyway it's been interesting did you listen to the radio show that was done in the 90s on like the sci-fi channel no what is that there's a very um there's back when the sci-fi was doing radio radio plays just because they could they did a radio drama of kindred of kindred what kindred yes yeah i'll send you the link please send what (laughs) i've literally never heard of this please send that to me it's out who did the adaptation i um i don't know off all i know is it was it was the science fiction channel and it was like you know yeah, they were just sort of reviving radio drama as like a genre that, you know, is associated with science fiction. And I just remember that it was like very, um, I, I thought of it just now because you mentioned the kind of like the first person, you know, like she does, they, they move into the, they do, they do some weird things. They move into the present. So she's like a writer in the present as opposed to in the late nineties. Um, and they do make some other kind of changes, but also they intersperse her retelling of her narrative with excerpts from um, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl and um, like other, right, like it's really intense, like just straight up. um, And it's, 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 it's as if they kind of want to make sure that their viewers understand that this has an historical correlate. As if they were not going to believe slavery is real. Yeah. See, oh, well, they, they told us it's not. That is not yeah. science fiction. <laughs> exactly. So we'll put they up the link. We'll put the link to this in the show notes. Um, it was yeah. Yeah, that's a wild. The I mean, it has seeing been. ear theater. The seeing yeah. ear theater. Yeah. The ones wow. who did it. Okay. And yeah, I mean, you know, the funny thing we're... about this book is it's been under option since it came out. Like it's like you've been trying mm-hmm. to make it a thing for a million years. And when I first got the idea to do it. It was, I think, like Russell Simmons. Somebody crazy. Somebody had the rights, and they were trying to make a movie. And I was like, "It's not a movie. It's not a movie. Not, it's a series. It's a series. Not a and it's not a movie." I really lucked out, but it is. There are these interesting, you know. So, spoiler alert: we ours is set in the present as well, because I realized that there are certain things that she's doing in that book that would, at that time, have read far more provocative. But we're in this funny space where. I find myself having to account for the ways in which we have progressed. So it's like an interracial marriage does not quite feel as much of a lightning rod as it did, I think. And like, we know we're supposed to root for them no matter what, but in that original book, and this is hard for like the network to get, there is for a while, this implication where you don't think you don't like her husband. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not like her husband. You don't like her husband. And actually the, the story itself gets you to a place where you begin to like him, you know? Um, but the idea of an unlikable, white male romantic lead is just not going to fly in 2021. <laughs> it's been like a really funny, it's been like a really funny way to like unpack the script in real time or the book, you know, in real time. Wow. Yeah. 
So we'll yeah, see. I do assign, usually teach a race, gender, and science fiction class every year. Um, and I often assign, for years I would teach Kindred, but really I teach Parable of the Sower and remind students, you know, this came out in 1994, mm-hmm. 1992, 93. And they're like, what? You know, they get hung up on the honor, uh, make America great again. Yeah. When they start, then it's like, oh, wait, the fire is in California. And I was like, she knew about California. Mess, right. Now. Right. Like the, the, you know, the going back to the uh, uh, corporate towns. Right. People were like, no. And I'm like, no, you see it happen now. And yeah. and so I think I think part of what you're saying is, you know, reason to return to a lot of this work. And I also find myself teaching a lot of 70s and 80s um, black feminist theory and as well as like 80s and 90s, like black queer men, like, you know, Pomo Afro homos and, um, you know, just like all of those all of those black men filmmakers, artists who were influenced by um, black feminist theory, because people are like, uh, you know, the kids are like, oh, you know, we can be gay now. And I was like, child, what? <laughs> I was like, the 90s. Um, hey. yeah. I, was like, I, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I'm like, wait, the seventies was gay, you know? So yeah, it's like, right. I'm like, I'm like, let's, let's actually have some pride in our, this, this, uh, this archive, this, archive this history this it's not new you know and it's important to understand that kind of aesthetic and performance and um intellectual and creative work that was happening that was subversive that was radical that was also people trying to live their lives you know and i think mm-hmm. i always say to them you know every generation i was like you know gen x we thought we were it right we were we were we were good we were reinventing everything and then the gen z and then the gen y and, and i said you know there has to be some connection particularly i think black folks get um that that structural dis uh continuity it can really warp your sense of what's possible mm-hmm. so yeah anyway um that's what i mean the idea of coherence it's all about coherence it's like you yeah. can't unless you can like sort of feel your roots in another conversation, it sounds like you're just floating out there. I mean, I, I feel like I have so many students who think they are just discovering representation in their work. They're just like, I'm the first person to put a Black person on stage talking. And I'm like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. I don't know where that comes from, but there is this, there's also a hunger I find in my students to like make history and do something pioneering. And that feels new and weird to me. Like, I don't ever think I believe that that was a premium for me. And I wonder what the force of that, like, what is the force that the pressure on people to, to be, to be singular, to be the first, you know, when actually we're, I'm sick of firsts right now, honestly. But anyway, this is not about Teddy Butler, but I also really mind the fact that she was out there doing it by herself. Nobody told her to do it. You know, she was really like a lonely only for the majority. I did this, I hosted this um, symphony space kind of celebration of her life. And Walter Mosley talked beautifully about how like she was, so isolated and angry about it and she doesn't show that but it's like when you really think about that work and how lucky we are now to be able to write in the context of other writers and to have a podcast like this you know i was talking to her um this wonderful woman Marilee heifetz who was her her agent her whole career or most of her whole career um it's really a person who steers her um her estate now she was saying that like she was um she asked she was in her like oh, octavia like you really should write a memoir and she would say i did write a memoir it was called kindred I mean, I'm not supposed to say that, but you know, what do you, <laughs> delete, delete, <laughs> no, like, delete. But you know, but this idea that she had, she had so that book is so singular, and that book is actually so about not 
subscribe to any party line and complicating ideas of blackness and identification and difference, you know, and that she did it all, all by her lungs that no one told you to do. That's sort of, nobody does that no more. Well, I think we've had you uh, on the show um, for too long, for far too for, long. Uh, no, not for far too long, for like a really, really great conversation, um, long time in the making, but uh, well worth it. Um, and um, we're going to, we're just going to have to bring you back. Continue. I know, bring me back. I want to talk about some other stuff. I yes. want to talk about Lotus. Yes, okay. Even though it's not as it kind of is SF on some level. If you really <laughs> close your eyes, there's something special. Okay, about I gotta watch White, White Lotus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. It's uh, oh yeah, yeah. There's definitely there's definitely fantastic elements uh, to that show. reading right now i'm just curious like what's 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 happening what am i reading um i am reading a lot of science fiction uh black uh critical critical work on science fiction Mm. and fantastic for my second book which is about um which and i'm reading a lot about plant about botany (laughs) plant biology um Mm -hmm. So, because I'm writing about um, archetypes, black archetypes in uh, speculative uh, genre, so in, in comics, in music, in uh, television and film, um, and so I'm also finding myself returning gratefully to um, uh, psychoanalysis. So uh, I've just started David Marriott's new book called Lacan Noir, Lacan and Afro Pessimism. Child is a mess. Oh, I mean, it's just uh, it's just a lot. I'm like, child, this is my head. And then, uh, so I'm reading a lot of high theory, got Ari Judy's Sentient Flesh book, which is like 500 pages and it's like this big. So I'm reading a lot of great black, uh, I'm reading Kevin Quashie's book on black aliveness, which is, uh, cause the book I'm writing is a lot about different forms of, of uh, living and consciousness. And I'm also trying to integrate um, um, tantric Buddhist philosophy into it because I'm thinking about um, reincarnation, um, you know, black bodies reincarnating as plants um, and trees and things like that. So um, luckily, you know, my first book will be coming out in the spring sometime between February and um, April. So I'm just giving myself a lot of time to read and to listen to podcasts and to listen to audiobooks and to look at talks. And I feel like as I'm finally, you know, tenured and I can just be a nerdy researcher, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I can just yeah. like indulge in archives and indulge in art and performance and not, you know, I'm not on any timeline. Um, so that feels, uh, so amazing. I'm reading a lot of that. And then as always, I'm reading a lot of fan fiction, which I'm a huge. Fan. I used to write fan fiction. I don't anymore. <laughs> I used to write Buffy fan fiction. That's right. Wow. Have you guys uh, talked about race in the Buffy universe? Because you know the Buffy head. And Shonda Rhimes was, by the way, inspired by Joss Whedon Buffy specifically. Oh, you, so, so one of the chapters is about surrender. Is about um, uh, colorism. Black the josh whedon's colorism issue with black men in uh serenity and firefly so that's a whole chapter about 
how he uses black men as these kind of um, demonic, um, violent forces in in the Firefly Serenity universe. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, I'm I I've watched everything. You know. Uh, yeah. I haven't finished the the new one of uh, the the one that's set in like the 18th 19th century Britain. But mm-hmm. so we can talk that's about wild. that another time. So I know. I was. The revel- well, I had a really spiritual moment with Kendra, the Vampire Slayer. Tommy, what are you reading? <laughs> I, um, you know, I'm in boxes, as you know, so... Oh, right, um, you just moved. But um, I am determined, and I'm also... It's also summertime. Um, and uh, But I'm determined to finish uh, Through the Valley of the Nest of Spiders by Samuel Delaney before the end of the summer. Uh, that's 700, uh, <laughs> thereabouts page, amazing, um, near future. I think it may be his answer to the parable series. I'm not quite sure. I've been working at the courage to ask him, um, mm. but it has a similar kind of, um, like, I guess sort of, yeah, near future, not quite. Di- well, maybe it is a, maybe it is a dystopia. Um, at one point, um, you know, bomb goes off and destroys, Hollywood and Bollywood and almost Nollywood. It's just like weird. Like, they go after the, like, the, the three wow. centers of world entertainment in the year 2030. Um, I'm reading, uh, I'm also reading theory. I just finished uh, The Long Emancipation by Ronaldo Walcott. And I'm waiting for the bookstore to deliver my copy of On Property, also by uh, Ronaldo, um, and super um, excited uh, to read that. Um, yeah, Black Lacan. I didn't realize I was I had it on order. I didn't realize it was physically in the universe. So um, I'll I have a. Oh, you have, a, you, so have a, you have a wink, wink, yeah. Um, and uh, the Black Register by Tendahi uh, Tendahi uh, Sipole. Uh, is another uh, kind of theory book that I'm reading and um, reading a lot of poetry. Um, rereading mm. A Map to the Door of No Return uh, by Dion Brand. Dion Brand. Um, which is coming up on its 20th anniversary this fall. And wow. we're going to be, or by we, I mean somebody else, but I'm going to be taking part in, <laughs> <laughs> in, uh, in a. Um, in a in a in a in a like a Zoom Zoom kind of event, um, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, if I had my library in front of me, you know, um, I would have a better sense. And of course, you know, um, the the book of the summer, uh, your friend and my friend Daphne Brooks. Oh yeah, that was the book that like I, I had like a set of books. That I was like, you know, to the movers, do not pack. You know, these are the books I want. <laughs> and of course, they pack them, right? So then, my dear, my dirty little secret is I go on Audible sometimes. Um, and actually, it's not a dirty secret. I think Audible is totally, you know, yeah. Um, I actually love listening to books sometimes. Um, and it's not an Audible. Daphne's book is not an Audible, so I got, I got to no. download. You got to get it. I want, to, I want her to record it though. That's the, only, that's the only way it's going to be worth. Oh my god, can you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why not? You know, as a karaoke. karaoke. <laughs> I mean, it's true. I, first of all, I love Audible, and actually, that was my discovery of the pandemic. Because I was like, uh-huh, I can just yeah. walk and listen and listen, you know, and still get something in. But I think I wish, you know, talk about the wow. 
invasion of critical race theory. It'd be so funny if people just started reading their books. Violence. You know? Yeah, yeah it, it would be it would be kind of a nice thing to you know. I mean, I guess it already exists, but some sort of like jailbreak version of Audible. Like, not everything has to be Audible. You know, like there's a whole kind of. I mean, it's Amazon, right? No, I mean, yeah, So. Um, if we could somehow like read it, but I mean, I'd be whatever. I'd be happy to read my book. Well, maybe, be careful what I say. <laughs> I would be happy for my book to be available as read for anyone who wants to, you know, yeah. access it in that medium. And um, but yeah, speaking of books on tape, I am also um, uh, the new the new translation of the the Odyssey because uh, oh Emily Wilson's or the very Emily Wilson's translation. Oh, it's of so good. I think about that every day. I'm obsessed. Ooh. I'm obsessed. Yes. I'm obsessed with the fact that her biggest inter- intervention was to just acknowledge for once that we're talking about slaves. slaves. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm. And then she called her slaves and they I, said, come down. Yeah. No, it's really. I literally, it's, I'm not even exaggerating. I drive around thinking about that book all the time. That That's yeah. the big interpretation. Okay. This, is the first, this is the first, my, my first time through the Odyssey, you know, because I was raised by wolves. And so, like, <laughs> I, you know, like, I mean, yeah, this is like the, the Western camp, right? Like, it is about <laughs> slavery, right? You know, but apparently, yeah. you know, it's been boulderized. It's never been acknowledged. I didn't say that word right. Boulderized up until this transition. Yeah. So, yeah. So. And it's amazing to hear her talk. I've watched some of her talks about it because it makes me think, too, about the the damaging politesse of the academy, right? Yes. That, like, there was no, no one used that word because it was... I just, I honestly just think about the shadow of like the Civil War, America's Civil War, yeah, and, it's, and, yeah. it's, and the ways it shaped the taste and the freedoms mm-hmm. of the academy and what that ultimately mm-hmm. means in terms of what we receive. Yeah. And it is, and it's just think that that's such a simple, and then she, or the point she makes, which is true, she's like, when you realize they're slaves, their actions make sense. Like that's mm-hmm. why they're having trouble with their slaves. It's not because their servants yeah. are sassy. And then characters are getting sold into slavery, you know, it's like, and then yeah. ask, me to come with him on this long journey and i suspected that at the end of this journey he might be selling me into slavery you know? <laughs> <laughs> i'm like whoa oh, God. <laughs> a different story. I know. it's a different story yeah yep. anyway um, so we okay. want to thank you so much brandon you, for guys. taking time out of your busy schedule this is such a lovely performance studies reunion um i know I, just, I love it i love all the things that you're doing um, and we want to also thank our producer, Dr. Alex Van Gills, and to Daisha Elliott, our social media support. And just a reminder, you can follow us on Instagram at Fantastic Blackness. And please join us uh, and next time and follow and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. <laughs> <laughs>